And the New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, and that can be found on, your, in, on page 858 of your Pew Bible. So in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caliphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to sh is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Task collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. 
Actually, my wife Kristen and I were, were reflecting this weekend that it was one year ago that we traveled from Chicago to visit One Ancient Hope for the, for the first time. And we were so grateful for that welcome that you had given us then, and we continue to, to be grateful for the way that you've continued to welcome and to love our family. So thank you for, for being the church to us. And as the church, what are we? Well, we are the people that have been called, that have been collected, that have been created, that have been crafted by the Word of God. And it's because of that identity and it's because of that expectation by which and through which God works through His Word. Let us, let us come before Him in prayer before we look at this passage together. God, our Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Lord, we we thank you for Jesus Christ, who you present us with in the scriptures. I pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this text. Lord, and, and that by way of them, Lord, you would communicate more deeply your gospel, your promise to your people. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, there's a lot in this passage, and in this particular passage, we find out about the ministry of John the Baptist. And in finding out about the ministry of John the Baptist, an especially bright light is cast upon a dynamic that we find running throughout all of Scripture, a dynamic that actually has huge implications for each of our lives. And this is the dynamic, this is the interplay of law and gospel. And towards that end, I want to look at this passage in in three parts. The law, the gospel, and then the law revisited. So let's look first at the law, and and to orient ourselves to that topic, we need to ask ourselves a question. Who is John? Who is this man? Well, he's he's a prophet, and in a very important way, he's actually the last of the Old Testament prophets, if we can say that. And we see this in verse 2. We're told that the word of God comes to John. And this is a classic scriptural formulation that highlights how prophets are called to their office. The word of God, the word of the Lord comes to them, and this is exactly what we see with John. So if John is a prophet, what exactly does a prophet do? Well, a prophet has many roles, but but one of those roles is to show the people the way that they failed to follow God's law. In fact, one theologian, Michael Horton, will call prophets, quote, covenant attorneys. What they do is they call the people to account by showing them how they failed to follow the law of their good and gracious God. And we see John doing just this. The very first thing that John does when he sees the crowd is he says the following, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And importantly, we're not told much at all about these crowds. They're simply called the crowds. And they're not just any crowd, specifically the crowds that are coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist. They're crowds that at least 
have an interest in John and his ministry. We might say that at least through the crowds that are showing up for church. Yet, however respectable they might seem, however above reproach they might appear, however beloved they might be by their community, God, or sorry, John calls all of them vipers and tells them that they are subject to the wrath of God. John says this about all of them. Each person in the crowd without distinction is subject to the wrath of God. But how is it that John can say that? John doesn't even know these people. If John is making a judgment like this, it must be because this pertains to something universal in the human condition, something that applies to all of us. And this is exactly what we find. As a prophet, as a kind of covenant attorney, John knows and he tells the people that they are guilty of violating the law of God. And what is the law? Well, it's to live with perfect love for God and for neighbor in all ways at all times. So when the crowd asks, what then shall we do? This uncompromising love of God and neighbor is the fullest answer to that question. And towards that end, think about John's response to the crowds. If you have two tunics or anything to share, treat, share it. Treat each of your belongings and the property that you have as that of your neighbor in need all of the time. Love your neighbor as yourself always. Whatever your vocation, tax collector, or otherwise, never do anything that's not wholly ethical. Never falsely imply that you're working more than you are. Never gossip about coworkers. Never make any less than wholly transparent financial transactions. Never speak harshly about or to a customer. Love your neighbor as yourself always. Whatever your level of resources, be content and do not take gain in any way that's less than ethical. Never gain anything by means that are dishonest in the least. Never even use an expired coupon. Never bend the truth about another person in the slightest way so that you make yourself appear better when you retell the story. Never tell the story in such a way that leaves out something that you did or misrepresents what someone else did in order to save your own face. Love your neighbor as yourself always. And so what does John tell them when they ask, what then shall we do? He tells them to love their neighbor as they love themselves and to do so always. And so stringent is this ethic that God is sure that all, or sorry, John is sure that all of them are subject to God's wrath. All of them fall short. And so what we find here in John is no bland moral imperative. Rather, we find cause for our condemnation for not living justly before God and before neighbor. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves, and we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so them and so us, we're not merely the crowds. We are 
a brood of vipers. And so we don't need planned advice on how to become a a good person. We need to know how to flee from the wrath to come. And you might say, well, isn't this a rather bleak view of things? And if you ask this question, you're, you're really asking a deeper question. You're asking, can God really ask us to be absolutely ethical? Expressing love of God and neighbor in absolutely everything we do and absolutely all the time? Isn't that a bit much? Well, we, we, we can all understand this kind of response. But please admit that this is not a full and absolute and uncompromising notion of goodness and justice. If we can speak of being good enough, then we don't have to be completely good. We don't have to be completely just. We can fall short of a perfect standard of of goodness, but still be sufficiently good. But then we have to ask deeper questions. What what is good enough and, and who's to say? What's the criterion? What's the rubric? Do you need a certain amount of, of good deeds to cancel out the bad things that you've done? Is it like a grade? Can a difference in one percentage point be the difference between passing and, and failing? And honestly, we all know this more often than not in our contemporary culture. This criterion is simply my group against your group. It's a relative notion of goodness and justice, and it leads to an us versus them mentality. We come to think we are the good people and they are the bad people. They are what's wrong with this country or with this community or even with this church. We divide the world into Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and progressives, educated and uneducated, those who live in urban areas and those who live in rural areas and so on and so forth. If any notion of ethics is not full and complete, then it will always be an ethic that condemns certain people and it justifies me and my enlightened friends. But any attempt to leave one group free from full and complete accountability, well, it's just take a sorely naive view of the fallen human condition. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote, quote, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, end quote. And John knew this. And that's why John can tell us that each and every one of us, we are subject to the wrath of God. If you believe that you are exempt from the wrath of God, the only way that you can think this is because you have a view of justice that's less than perfect. And what Christianity presents us with is a holy, perfect justice, a holy, perfect goodness that calls us all to account and leaves all of us guilty before God. God. We have not loved God nor neighbor as we know that we should. And perhaps your first reaction is to call this unfair, 
but you can't call this unjust. What else can a perfect justice do but leave absolutely all of us guilty of injustice before God and neighbor? If you scoff at this, your view of justice is not too high, but much, much too low. If you think you are good and just on your own, you have to have a relative and in some sense incomplete notion of justice and goodness. So if that's the case, why does John tell us this? Why does John tell us that we're under the wrath of God? Well, look at verse 7. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We have a therefore statement. John's, John's utterance of, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, logically follows from what came before it. And what came before it, what does it proceed from? Well, a, a prophecy from a fellow prophet, a prophecy of Isaiah about John himself. We read, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What does the prophecy mean here? Well, it tells us that John prepares the way of the Lord, that John makes the path straight, that John is undergoing a kind of leveling project wherein the mountains will be brought low and the valleys will be brought high. But what does this mean? How is it that this prepares the crooked to become straight? How is it that this prepares all flesh to see the salvation of the Lord? Well, because all flesh stands condemned before the perfect law of God. Those who seem high are shown to be guilty before this perfect law of goodness and justice. And those who seem to be low are put on the very same level as everyone else. We all stand equally condemned there is no distinction. We're all on the same level. We're all at the same height. Therefore, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But this is not the final word. Again, this is a word of preparation. John comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Yes, we are a brood of vipers, and if we come to accept that, if we come to acknowledge that, we are ready for a new word, which brings us to our second point, the gospel. So if this is true, how is this good news? Because we read in verse 18 that John preached good news to the people. Well, to speak of good news is, is a technical term that, that, that denotes a kind of royal announcement. And when we think of, of any news, what news does is it announces a happening. To speak of news is, is not to speak of an ethic or advice or suggestions or rules or command. News is the announcement of something that has happened. When we read the, the newspaper, we read the news about happenings around the world. We don't read the newspaper for suggestions for living our daily life. 
And so when the crowd asks, what then shall we do? Good news is not the answer to that question. In Scripture, good news is not what we should do, but rather what has been done, and specifically what God has done for us. And what is this good news? Well, it's John's announcement of another. As we read in verse 16, John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, when we think about the office of of prophet, we have to note that it's a time-bound office. To be a prophet is to point forward to Christ. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20, that the church is the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and, and prophets. And the prophets are those who came before Christ who pointed to Christ. And Paul and his fellow apostles, well, those are the ones who came after Christ and proclaimed to the people the finished work of Christ. Both prophets and apostles pronounce God's judgment but also God's promise of salvation in Christ, the promise of deliverance from the wrath we deserve. And John is the very last prophet. Think about it. He's the last one to proclaim the work of Christ before it's accomplished. And so technically, what we have here is is good news that has not yet happened. But John assures us that it certainly will And the announcement of what will happen is good news indeed. So, what is it that will be done? Well, one will come who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. But what does this mean? Well, to to get to the bottom of this, we we need to look at a contrast that John makes when talking about the crowds. Again, he he speaks both of of broods, of, of vipers, but he also speaks of children of Abraham. He writes, uh, he says the following in verse 8, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So what do these terms mean? Well, when John calls the crowd a brood of vipers, he's relating the crowd to, to Satan, to the serpent himself. And if we look at the Greek here, what's translated as brood of vipers could also be offspring of vipers. And this is a reference to the curse of Satan in Genesis 3. God looks upon the serpent who has plunged humanity into sin, and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what we find here are two basic kinds of of offspring, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And John calls the crowd, the entire crowd, the offspring of the serpent. But of course, there there is another offspring here, the offspring of of the woman, the offspring of of Eve. And as we go on in in Genesis, as as we've just studied as, as a church, this becomes the offspring of Abraham. But how is it that the crowds are to become the offspring of Abraham? Because uh, what John is telling us that apparently their physical lineage from Abraham is not enough. 
Well, think about this. Luke, the writer of the present account, he knew this well. Who was it that Luke traveled with? At whose feet did Luke learn about Christ and the Christian faith? Well, the Apostle Paul. And after reminding his readers in Galatians 3 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul tells us that we ourselves become children of God by faith. Abraham was counted righteous by believing the promise of God. And we become children of Abraham by believing this very same promise. And we too are counted as righteous. This is the promise proclaimed by all of the prophets, and this is the promise here proclaimed, proclaimed by John. By faith in God's promise, we are no longer offspring of the serpents, but we become offspring of Abraham. And this casts light on John's warning. He tells us in verse 8, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But, but why this imagery? Why the imagery of the stone? Well, what's in the background here is, is Ezekiel chapter 36. And in this chapter, God says, God promises the following to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remember the heart of stone. I'm sorry, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. End quote. And this, this language of sprinkling. Well, this is the language of, of baptism. And what is sprinkled? What is put into the people? Well, God says, I will put my spirit in you. And we find two effects from this sprinkling. Hearts of stone will be transformed into hearts of flesh, and persons will be able to walk in the instruction and the law of God. And this accords perfectly with what we find here in John. God turns stones into children of Abraham. God turns our stone hearts into hearts of flesh. And because of this transformation, we can share the faith of Abraham. Yet only by the power of the Holy Spirit can our hearts be transformed and can we have that very faith of Abraham. Or, as we find in Ezekiel, only by the sprinkling, only by the anointing, only by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is the same good news that we find from John. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Christ will baptize us with his spirit, giving us hearts of flesh and enabling us to rest our faith in him. And like Abraham, just like Abraham, 
We are justified and we are counted as holy, just and holy, good and holy, righteous in the sight of God because of this faith. But why? Why would that be the case? Because of Christ, because of the promised one, the one who lived a complete and perfect life of justice and goodness on our behalf. He's the one who fulfills righteousness at every turn, and that's why here he's receiving baptism from John. And when Christ arises from the waters of baptism, he hears the following words from God the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And when we place our faith in Christ... These warm words of love from God the Father become words to us. God looks upon us and he says, You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. By, because of faith in Christ, just like Abraham, we receive the very righteousness of Christ himself. But Christ also takes something from us. He takes the wrath that we deserve, the wrath that John warned us about, the wrath that John told us to flee. Because on the cross, we find a complete contrast to this scene of baptism. Instead of the sky opening up bright with these warm words of love from the Father, on the cross, we find the sky is dark and judgment and the heavens are silent. Jesus calls out to the Father in his human nature. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet the sky is silent. There's no commendation of fatherly love, and even the Son in his human nature doesn't refer to God as Father, but the much more distant address of God, my God, my God. This is what we deserve. Yet Christ bore this judgment and Christ bore this silence so that we might receive the blessing of God and that we might hear God the Father say to us, you, you are my beloved child. With you, you, I am well pleased. This is the promise we receive the blessing of Christ because Christ has taken the curse. And this is a powerful promise. In Matthew 11, we find Christ speaking about John the Baptist. And what does Christ say? He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is Christ saying here? He's saying that no mere human, and, and Christ himself is not a mere human, but, but no mere human has done a better job of keeping the law than John the Baptist. Everyone that has lived, apart from Christ himself, but from everyone else that has lived, no one has better followed the commandments of God. Yet Christ tells us that the one who is least, least in the kingdom of God is greater than all of John's efforts. With faith, we receive something better than the righteousness of John. We receive the righteousness of Christ himself. 
John is worthy of God's wrath, and he knows it, and that's why the same words that he speaks to the crowd, he can speak to himself. And he can speak all these words to everyone except to Christ himself. And do we believe this? Do we believe that faith in Christ is all that we need? Do we believe that faith in Christ alone reconciles us to God? Believe me, you will never, never, ever strive harder than John the Baptist. Yet the righteousness of John the Baptist pales in comparison to the righteousness of Christ Jesus, that righteousness that we receive by faith. By your own efforts, you will not be as righteous as John. But that righteousness wasn't enough anyways. If it were, then there would be no need for the gospel. There would be no need for this promise. So John prepares the way of the Lord by giving us the law, but then also giving us God's promise. He gives us law and then gospel. He tells us what we should do but haven't done, and then he tells us what God has done for us on our behalf. But this brings us to a third and final point, the law revisited. Does this mean that the law and the gospel are at odds? Does the law only remain a burden of continual condemnation for us? Well, this can often be the impression that that we get. I heard a podcast recently where where one person interviewed said the following on the connection between the law and and gospel. And and I don't want to read too much into it, and I've condensed the the response a bit, but, but, but this person said the following, quote, People hear the message of grace which is life-shattering and extremely exciting, that my past might be wiped away. But then what happens is you bring the law back into it. So law, grace, law becomes the way we usually put it. The disposition that often comes through is this, to get better, to try harder, to pull themselves together. Eventually what you'll have is what you'll have in any other part of the culture, which is burnout, end quote. So then is the law simply the preparation for the gospel? Once we receive the righteousness of Christ, can we leave the law behind? Well, we have to ask ourselves, how do we square this with the words of Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And at least at face value, the words of this interview seem at odds with Psalm 19. So we have to ask, is the law a source of delight or a source of burnout? If the law only condemns, then yes, absolutely, the law is only a source of burnout. But is this all that the law does? Um, an example is, is helpful here. So the, the philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, he offers an example by which the same words, the same utterance, can actually do two different things at the same time. He uses the example of a family sitting around the dinner table and The mother says, only two days until Christmas. 
And Wolterstorff points out that in this one breath, in this one utterance, two actions are actually happening. The mother is informing the children of the holiday to come, but she's also warning her husband that he needs to finish buying Christmas gifts before the holiday hits. And so we have one utterance, one breath, two actions. And just as the utterance only two days before Christmas can be one action to the children and one action to the husband, might it be possible that the utterances of the law, the utterances of God himself, might be doing the same thing, might be having different effects in different audiences? Well, this is precisely the position of the Reformed tradition, the tradition of which Presbyterianism is a part. We, we speak of different uses of the law. And toward that end, the reformer John Calvin actually says that the principle, the principal use of the law, quote, finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already reigns and lives, end quote. This use serves as, quote, the best instrument for them to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it, end quote. The law does not save. It never could, and it never, ever has. From Adam and Eve onward, anyone who has ever been saved has been done so by putting their faith in the promise of God that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And outside of Christ, the law will condemn us. But that condemnation is not the most proper use. We find the most proper use in those who have come into a right relationship with God, and the law teaches us how to live out this right relation. It's to teach the people who are already the people of God to live like what they already are. Think, for example, of, of the giving of the Ten Commandments. God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments after he has already rescued them and delivered them from Egypt. He has told them, you are my people, and because you are my people, I will give you these commandments. They've already been saved. They've already become God's people. The law is to help them to live out what they already are. And this is the principal use because this is the use of the law given to us at creation. We are saved by Christ and we come into a proper relationship with God, just like Adam and Eve were in a right relationship with God before the fall. And the law now is able to function again rightly because it functions rightly for those who are in a right relationship with God. As theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes, quote, that the law has become a threat, a letter that kills, is not the essential truth about the law, but a historical accident contingent upon human fallenness, end quote. And in an important sense, the fact that the law condemns is wholly unnatural. It would not condemn us if humanity had not rebelled against God and fallen into sin. And if this is the principal use to condemn us, then we are giving more weight to what humanity has mangled rather than what God has made. If condemnation were the primary use of the law, then we would primarily be sinners, simply sinners. 
rather than good creations of God who have fallen into sin and who will be rescued by God from it. And to be sure, in the new creation, in the resurrection, the law will not condemn. It will only lead and instruct. And an example is, is helpful here. Think about a, a hairdryer. If I use a hairdryer underwater, it will kill me. I will be electrocuted. An aquatic, a watery environment is good for many things, but using a hairdryer is not one of them. And so when I use a hairdryer in an aquatic environment, something meant to help me actually ends up killing me. We find a similar dynamic here with the law. When the law functions in the improper environment of a fallen creation wherein sin reigns, something meant to help me actually ends up killing me. When I use a hairdryer in water, it will bring me death. But this was not the manufacturer's original intention. In the same way, when I use the law in a fallen world, it will bring death. But this was not God's original intention for the law. However, if you are a Christian, the law is not a source of burnout or condemnation. It teaches you what to live out what you already are. Because of Christ, if you have faith in him, there is no condemnation. The law teaches us to grow into the image of Christ. It still convicts us and it still leads us to repentance, but this conviction is the discipline of a good and loving and gracious father. It's not condemnation. Only two more days till Christmas. A speech act of informing to children and one of warning to husbands. Love your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. A speech act of condemnation for those who are outside of Christ and a speech act of loving instruction for those who are in Christ. And as God tells us in that passage we quoted earlier from Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Because Christ has baptized us with the Holy Spirit, we not only have faith, but we have transformed transformed hearts that allow us to lovingly obey the commands of God. And remember those words that become ours, those words from the Father to Christ. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. In Christ, we are already children of God. We do not obey the law to become children of God. It will never work. If it didn't work for John, trust me, it will not work for you. But we obey the law to live out what we already are. If we are parents in our very best moment, this is exactly how we parent. Our children know that neither good nor bad behavior will make them love us more, make us love them more or less, or make them more or less our children. Rather, we want them to obey because we want them to grow in maturity, in wisdom, and in character. And so our prayer for our children is that they would learn to listen to us, not in order to earn our love, but because they are absolutely confident in our love. They move out not for our love, but with our love. 
If you are a parent, imagine how your heart would break if your child said, now that I have a good report card, will you now please love me as your child? Now that I have done my chores and done them well, now will you please love me as your child? Now that I have won the game for my team, please, 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 will you love me now as your child? Yet this is so often how we relate to God. Now that I have prayed, God, will you please, please love me now as your child? Now that I've read my Bible, God, please, please, will you love me as your child? Now that I've helped my neighbor across the street, will you please, please love me as your child? Now that I went one day without telling a lie, will you please love me as your child? Now that I've talked to someone about Jesus, please, God, please, please, now, will you love me as your child? The law of the Lord is a delight not because it has the power to make us children of God. It absolutely does not. The law is our delight because in Christ we are already children of God. And the law leads us into the joyful life that Christ has already won and secured for us. If we have faith in Christ, God is already well-pleased with us. He says, you, you are my beloved child. With you, you, I am well-pleased. And so we do not move out to earn the pleasure of God but in full confidence that we have already and irrevocably received it. And with that confidence, let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a good and gracious Father. We thank you that you have sent us your Son, Jesus Christ, that he has done all that is commanded, that he has made us your children. Help us to receive that. Help us to rest in that. Help us to know that with every fiber of our being. Because of that, help us to move out in all that we do in the full confidence of your pleasure and of your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.